Welcome to Meaningful Play, the podcast where we discuss our favourite medium, video games, and the cultural and social issues that surround them. Welcome to episode 18 of the Meaningful Play podcast. Today we're going to be discussing walking simulators. So, what have we been playing this week? (laughs) I'll go first. So, I've been playing a whole smorgasbord of games recently. I've actually reclaimed my hobby and I'm really happy about that because for a long time, like as a PhD student Mm. studying, I I don't study games explicitly. You know, I'm studying more a version of games Mm. culture and looking at games journalism. And so while I'm not studying, you know, games specifically, having to read about game-related content all the time drives you nuts. It's hard. It is hard. I went through the same thing and I feel like I'm still feeling the fallout of... This is like, this is scaring me. me. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're turning a hobby into your work, which isn't always terrible but I think you're constantly analyzing and you just probably feel a bit burnt out and I know at least when I when I was doing my PhD I felt like a lot of games were just really uninspiring and then yep. The Witcher came out and I was like thank god because I needed something that really <laughs> moved me yes and that yeah so I guess I think it's I think it's very understandable no totally yeah. and I really feel that when you talk about The Witcher 3 because that game for me was actually the Final Fantasy 7 remake I'm like thank god you know finally something to eat um, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of feels like we've been going through a drought for a while that doesn't mean that there aren't great games out there but for me I just I just wasn't gelling with a lot of mm. what I was playing and I don't know I, I'm just I'm feeling it. I've been yeah. really feeling it recently. I've been maybe a bit kinder to, to games that I've started that I hadn't been previously. Like, I, I am actively trying to, you know, just push through. It's like, oh, this isn't really interesting here. It's like, no, like, let's go a bit further. This seemed really interesting. So, yeah, I think also, too, getting into the habit of gaming is really important. And I've definitely got it's around 8 p.m., 9 p.m. And I play for like an hour or two. And that's it. And so it kind of feels like once you're once you're into the habit of playing regularly, like you can maintain that for a while. Mm. I do expect during busier periods of my life that perhaps I won't play as often, and maybe I'll lose the habit altogether. But it's nice to know that actually, if you do make a, a time and set it, you can get through it. Because <laughs> there is this fear in being like a game scholar that if you don't play, you know, current releases, if you're not kind of seeing what's happening in the the sort of indie space, if you're not in engaging with games that you're falling behind. I don't know if you feel that as well. Yeah, I definitely have. I, I definitely, f- I think I felt it more maybe last year than currently, but it's definitely a thing. I definitely, it's like almost FOMO, <laughs> you know, and trying to make sure you're still engaged with your field. But the reality of it is when you're working full-time hours and it's not all on that area, Yes. you know, what are you going to do, right? You can't, you don't necessarily have the time and then in your off time, you don't want to only play games. That's not healthy either. So yeah. yeah, it's definitely, I think, a bit of a challenge. And I wonder, I wonder if people in film and that and music and stuff have the same experience because those kinds of media consumption areas or disciplines. Yeah. 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 No, I definitely feel like they would. Because I feel like potentially even worse because you can consume 
consume so much more mm. substantially with a game. Like you're playing the one product for, you know, at least an hour or so um, in terms of its length. And then, you know, you have like JRPGs and they go for like 100 plus hours <laughs> while, yeah. you know, a song is like three minutes long. Mm-hmm. A movie is usually about, what, an hour and a half, two hours. So maybe it's worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're a film scholar, please comment on our show notes. We would love to know. But back to what we've been playing recently. So I've been playing a lot. Uh, but today I'm only going to discuss two titles. So I've been playing the Super Mario 3D All-Stars collection that was released last year in October for Mario's, I think it's his 35th anniversary. Mm. I could be wrong. I can't think of the number right now. But I've been playing that. I've been playing specifically Super Mario 64. And I've also been playing, or I've also recently finished, sorry, an indie title called Anodyne. Mm-hmm. So starting with Super Mario 64, my boyfriend actually bought this for me for Easter. It was That's super nice. cute because I've been wanting to play it for a while. I should also bring up something a bit disturbing about this title in terms of, I guess, consumer trust in a way. <laughs> this collection, the physical version of it was given a deadline of sorts where if you didn't purchase the game by, I think it was like the 26th of March or the 31st of March, don't get me wrong, they were pulling it from shelves. So it was limited. They what? were limiting a game. Yes. Interesting that they produce they, in theory, could overproduce the product and then take it off the shelves. Yeah, but it's like typical Nintendo. They do this with Amiibos as well, where there's a limited amount of them, so that makes people want to buy it straight away because of FOMO. But then, and like, not that I've done this, but I have recently (laughs) been purchasing things from AliExpress, and I have noticed (laughs) that there are a lot of knockoff Amiibos and things. But But, like, that's why. Yeah. Like, firstly, they're cheaper and stuff, but, I mean, if you're artificially making like if you're purposefully making not enough of them but you're not necessarily making more money as a result you're so I guess it's all about the hype and the demand and the excitement of things selling out quickly it just seems like an it's odd Nintendo sometimes is quite confusing to me I know it's it's so strange and I mean the game was between US dollars it was a $60 Mm. game and it contains Super Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine and Super Mario Galaxy now the first Galaxy I'm pretty sure came out in like 2007 so that's how old these games are and they received basically the bare minimum of remastering I kind of feel like the whole the limited aspect of the collection was also due to the fact that it wasn't a fantastic product. It was like, it's a very cheap way for Nintendo to make a lot of money. I always feel... Very quickly. Because I remember when we used to have the Wii, it would advertise on the home screen about the emulator. And I remember thinking... I remember you've mentioned before how, okay, I bought it... I've bought this old game on the, so I can replay it in the emulator. But it, it doesn't have... It doesn't carry... You know, like on PlayStation, it would carry across your account? Yeah. Whereas Nintendo, it doesn't. And I always have looked at that as quite or you could just download an emulator because and not buy it three times like it seems like an odd system where they're not really providing a lot of um I guess value for money or fairness or whatever you want to say I think they just have a very refined sense of how people work when it comes to games and nostalgia Mm. because they know you can't be bothered whipping out your Wii that has the game you want to play when you could just buy it on their latest console for $10 and And sure that and it's easy and maybe that $10 doesn't mean something to you right now there's a it's you know a decent amount of money for a nostalgia hit I guess but for Nintendo it's like oh yes over this lifetime we've paid (laughs) this much for this game to us yeah yeah sure it's kind of evil in way but you know for a wholesome company it's 
it's not very consumer friendly at times. It'd be interesting, I guess, to compare it because I remember Disney years ago, they would only bring out DVDs. Yes, every the vault, decade. right? Yeah, it was yeah. like certain. Once there'd been a certain amount of time, they'd release DVD for like a year or something or other, and then so you could only get the movies in yeah. certain times and. It's, yeah, I guess it's interesting to think about the kind of tactics because, again, both of them are, are all about nostalgia, really, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, I find The Vault really interesting and I haven't looked at this online, so, you know, this is more of a, a, a sort of question, but what happens to people now that have collected all these Vault items when, you know, Disney Plus exists now? Yeah. Does it feel like a waste? Or I, I know that they have extra content on Vault discs, but, you know, unless you're a real Disney fan and you engage with that content, then... Yeah. 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 I would it's I would bit... say like you can also probably download it if yeah. you really wanted it. So I find And I mean it I guess odd. there's always gonna be collectors, right? Mm. There's always gonna be people that want physicals, so that's not really an issue, but I was just like, oh, I'd be really annoyed about that if it was me, at least. Yeah, but because I'm sure they've the created, yeah. Well, they've, yeah, they've created demand for something and said we have limited ones, and now suddenly it's all available because that's how things are progressing. So, yeah, 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 I get maybe it's yeah. just like people who collected videos now, they're not worth much. It's just the way the world goes. But Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, oh. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so back to the Super Mario 3D All-Stars. So I've just been playing Super Mario 64, and, yes, the reason that I wanted to play it is that I had a craving for it because I was feeling nostalgic about it. So I played about maybe just past the halfway point. I've got to Wet Dry World, which is a cityscape level that is notorious online, weirdly enough, for people quitting at that point. Like they, they find the level quite bizarre and they think it has a, a negative vibe. I've never felt I mean, that about Wet Dry World. If it's a cityscape, what's, how does the name Wet Dry World relate to the... Okay, I should probably explain this. So when I mean cityscape, I kind of mean like the skybox is more Radio. like a cityscape and okay. it's got like more of an industrial vibe than the rest of the, the worlds, which are more fantastical okay. in nature. Yeah. And it's such a funny name. Yeah, and yeah. You, can, you can change the water level in the game. So it's... Ah, yeah, so okay. you can adjust the water level. So you could have the entire level covered by water or you could have none at all. Okay. And that's how the, the, the puzzles are set up for <laughs> collecting all the all the stars. So I'm not a wet dry world. I don't think I'll be going back. Obviously Easter was more than a month ago now and I haven't <laughs> returned. So yeah, I, I found it quite I don't want to say disappointing because I don't think Super Mario 64 is ever going to be disappointing for me, but there was only one point in the game where I was just like, hell yeah, like I feel like (laughs) I am, you know, back in my lounge room when I was six and that's when I was playing Jolly Roger Bay and I feel like a lot of people will probably feel this way um, and think about this level as the quintessential Super Mario 64 experience because there's just something about listening to the soft synths of (laughs) Dia Dia Docks as you just float uh, so slowly in you know this in this bay and there's like these muted blues and reds and greens dreamy. and it's dreamy and so I really enjoyed that and the low res polygons you know we've seen recently this this aesthetic sort of emerge from that era of the Nintendo 64 and the PlayStation One where those grainy low res graphics are uh, are very popular. And yeah, I guess I'm just feeding into that at the moment, and I really enjoyed the level. But otherwise, I just felt a bit 
I don't want to say the game soulless. I'm going to call myself soulless here. And I just felt like I was being robotic. Like, I still remember where a lot of the stars are. And it is a game that I have played since I was a child. So maybe, you know, I just needed to play Jolly Roger Bay and get it over and done with <laughs> and just play my original version um, as opposed to actually getting in the collection just to play this fun game. But, yeah. So maybe in the future I'll return to it and be like, wow, this was an amazing game. But as it is, um, you know, I don't dispute the, the, the cultural relevance of Super Mario 64. It is one of the best platformers out there still. But yeah, it just wasn't for me this time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even, funny. yeah. It's yeah. funny how it varies depending on how you're feeling. I remember I've been through a similar thing when I played Spyro Remake. And I guess it was a remake, so it was a little bit different. But certain levels, I was like, oh, this is a dream. Absolute heaven. And then uh, there were certain moments where I was like, actually, it's not doing it for me anymore. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that's so crushing in a way because you're like, no. Like, yeah. It's like part of your childhood that's just like dissipating. And you're just like, nah. Yeah. I thought that this would feel a certain way, but it doesn't. And hmm, sad. But <laughs> again, hopefully it can be recouped in the future when I, when I go back to it. Uh, moving on, though. So I played... Anodyne as well. So that is a 16-bit adventure title that was developed by Analgesic Productions. Sorry, They are a two-person team and this game takes great inspiration from uh, Super Nintendo era video games. But even though the game is commonly associated with uh, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. The developers have actually said that uh, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, which was released in the early 90s for the Game Boy, is actually the more correct sort of influence in this sense. It's weird saying correct influence, but the more apparent influence. And I totally agree with that. I think that uh, Anodyne's atmosphere is just so surreal and dreamy Mm -hmm. and quite unsettling and in parts incredibly ominous. So I should say the comparisons to Zelda. So Anodyne is basically dark Zelda. So, (laughs) you know, you traverse the land, you search for important items and collectibles, and you are basically the hero. You are effectively trying to save the environment or the land that you've been popped in from some evil that is going to consume it. And you also... uh, you travel to dungeons and you complete puzzles. So it's very much like Zelda in that way. But in terms of its representational themes, incredibly different, absolutely different. I felt like I was playing a subversion of my childhood games, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I found that really interesting. I also found that um, there's just an adult nature to Anodyne that just satisfied me so deeply because when I play Zelda games, they're obviously constructed to appeal to everyone. A lot of Nintendo games are designed with that appeal, but Anodyne was for a more mature audience. And I didn't know I needed Dark Zelda in my life or (laughs) mature Zelda in my life, but obviously I did. The themes deal with issues like, you know, having an existential crisis and, you know, really touching on philosophical concepts. And yeah, I, I just found it to be a really fantastic title. Those themes, unfortunately, aren't always connected and the plot becomes very vague at times and you're trying to search for what does this mean, what does this mean? Because, you know, in other games, they kind of feed you the narrative more so, but in this one, you know, you're you're trying to link something together that... In conclusion, you find that isn't really linked together. Okay. It's more of a collection of concepts and themes as opposed to something cohesive. Okay. And I found that to be a bit disappointing but not enough to be 
detrimental to how I view the game. And I, I, I think that this is an absolutely fantastic game. I have since played the sequel. I won't talk about it today, but that just, that, that capitalized on what Anodyne has done in basically feeding into people's nostalgia, but, you know, creating something completely different out of it and satisfying, you know, the desire for something new, but the desire for something familiar at once. Hmm, yeah, so it sounds like it's, it's an interesting combination of, like, PS1-style nostalgia with current existential crisis <laughs> trying to understand the world and yourself and your place in yes, it. Yes, yeah. yeah. And it is kind of fucking weird. Like, your sword is a broom, And, you know, you go out throughout the world, like, sucking up dust and, you know, doing all sorts of things. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So, sorry, that's all I've played recently. What about you? Um, so I went through a bit of a slump. Um, I tried a few different games and went, all right, let's play, like, a couple of nights for an hour each. And if we don't like it, we'll just uninstall it and accept you don't like it, which was good because it kind of just made me feel less guilty about having a list of games to play that I wasn't really into. Ended up, to be honest, <laughs> playing an old favourite of mine mm-hmm. from when I was a kid called The Legend of Dragoon. I think it came out about 2000. It's like a four-disc PS1 game, RPG. Yep. It came out at a similar time as one of the Final Fantasies. And I think it was clearly trying to compete or at least trying to, like, capitalise on the popularity. I guess that I was going to ask, is it a JRPG? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yep. Oh, I love it. It's great. <laughs> I never finished it as a kid. I got real close. Yeah. Um, and I never really quite got there because it was so long. It's very moving. This narrative is crazy and convoluted and you have to read a guide to understand it because it's a typical JRPG. Um, but it's very touching and it's got great soundtrack, like cool attacks. You have to press buttons at the right time and they all have certain patterns and they say their attacks in cool words. And you, it's just <laughs> that those little elements that stick in yeah. your brain. And um, yeah, like I, I got a new emulator for it. It took ages to set up the thing because it was a really complicated one, but I get to view it in widescreen, which mostly works. It looks super pretty. You know, for a PS1 oh. game on your TV now, it's lovely to be yeah. able to have that experience. Um, did you play an original version or did you play a modded version? I only ever played original version. Okay. I, I'm yeah. actually, there's a subreddit who lovingly think that we're going to get a remake. <laughs> I, look, I hope we do one day. I'm not sure how likely it is. It's got a small but strong following. Um, and I'm, I think they've done mods, but more to actually make it harder. Oh, okay, and which yeah. I'm like, nah, it's it's good the way yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny. It's it's so endearing, and I love. I still love it. Nothing has let me down so far. I've been like, the music's great. I remember this world. I remember this level. You know, I, what I didn't remember is how bad the translation is. It's funny, and I didn't realize. And I think now I'm like, now I understand what all these memes on the the subreddit <laughs> for this game. They're f- and like. You know, at the very beginning, you're rescuing... It's all, it's all very typical general stuff, like you're rescuing your girlfriend from a prison. Yeah. And she's bloody useless. <laughs> <laughs> and this guard's chasing after you, trying to kill you because you've invaded, and he's like, oh, you silly guy, <laughs> with, like, these exclamation marks. And you're like, what? You silly guy. <laughs> That's so abusive. And throughout, there's been some really funny translations, but it makes it so endearing. I love it. Um, I, yeah, I've truly enjoyed it. So hopefully this time I'll get all the way through to the end. Um, other than that, I recently have got back into Kingdom Come Deliverance. And it's an action RPG, 
and it's set in the medieval era, and it is set in Bohemia. Mm-hmm. So I think Eastern, what is that? Eastern Europe. Um, it's really interesting. It prides itself on being really historically accurate. And throughout the game, little uh, descriptors like pop-ups will come up and you can read more about different things. And it's, I really, really like it. I feel like they've kind of hit a nice sweet spot with trying to be realistic, which is something we've spoken about a few times, because at what point does it become a simulator? How, to what extent can you even do realism and have it be a fun game that's actually engaging to play and all that? Mm-hmm. Like, you have to eat... But it's not super... Like, there's different difficulties, obviously. Yes, yep. But it's not super cumbersome. It gives you snippets of history that I really find interesting. At the end of the day, you're some peasant. Like, your dad was a blacksmith. Your village got invaded. Everyone got killed. You've managed to survive. And this knight, like an actual knight, has taken you under his wing and said, basically, you work for him. You know, so at the beginning, you don't have a horse because only rich, fancy people had horses. So, you know, you've seen this kind of difference from other typical medieval yes. RPGs, you yeah. know. And people say, like, who the hell are you? Like, you're no one. You know, you wear these crappy clothes for a long time. When we first got a helmet, we were like, woo, this is great, you know. It's kind of a reality check. And in a way, that makes it sound really serious. But it's not super serious. Like, I feel like when you talk to people... Like, it's funny. Like, yeah, you people going through hardships and it's making you understand what the world was like back then. And there are some very cl- nice ways of talking about women. Like, obviously, there are issues with violence against women and rape and all this sort of stuff, because, of course. Yeah. But the way the characters talk about it, like, it's it isn't just... It doesn't feel just horrible. It actually feels like they've thought about, yeah, this is really rough and this isn't great and... People had a hard life. Like, it actually feels like they're addressing that in a way. And it's funny. Like, you have interactions with people and it's almost tongue-in-cheek. Like, there's, there's some rich guy who you go to help out and he wants to go hunting in the forest, which, you know, you're not actually allowed to do because you're a peasant and only rich, like, nobles could do that. And you say to him, like, oh, well, if you want me to follow you into the forest, like, I need a horse, right? And he's like, no, who are you? Like, you're not noble get lost and so you're running behind this guy the whole way but it but it just feels funny you know it just it yeah. just genuinely feels like it's done with a bit of humor in it and I've just really enjoyed it it's hit for me it's hit a sweet spot and it's really yeah. interesting because to me that does sound like reality yeah like you know, funny, like, you know hilarious things do happen yeah so it'd be weird you know if it was just medieval simulator with those serious themes because it wouldn't be accurate that's so in true. a way they've got <laughs> they that is realism yeah that's a very yeah. That's a very good point. This idea of like seriousness, 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 and realism, and trying to understand like to what extent. The other thing I've been playing is a bit of Animal Crossing. Uh, I got it during COVID and yep. was one of those people who really got it in and did really get into it. And now I'm getting really tired. I'm finding like this week I've genuinely fell asleep at eight thirty a couple nights. I'm just struggling. So it's been nice to kind of just get home and like try to unwind because I'm not very good at unwinding and part of that for me is playing Animal Crossing so I'll just like sit on the couch dig up some fossils see what recipe washed up today give some gifts to some of my villagers maybe like try to pretty up a few things and but usually I just text my sister and say hey like come visit my island or I'll visit your island and we'll have a back and forth or 
like sometimes I'll go help her get ideas for what to do to her island or she'll come and I'll be like, tell me how to fix this. I need ideas. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. It kind of sounds like the way you're you're going to your sister for advice, like your sister really likes Animal Crossing as become like a, an expert in it. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think we've both, she's told me lots of things I can do. And then I've also told her lots of things she can do. Okay, so, so it's, it's like mutual, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been really nice. It's a nice way to bond and play together. Yes. Um, it, yeah, and have a laugh, you know, like, especially when you're trying to unwind at the end of the day. You're just like, oh, today sucked. Log on. You know, we'll send yeah. each other memes about it, which is really nice. That but, is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It um, sounds relaxing. Yeah, it is. I really do think it's, like you mentioned with routine, I think it helps to go through the process. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, the other game I played is Sagebrush, which I actually played upon your recommendation, and it does link really well to our topic for today. So I thought maybe you could explain it a little bit. Okay, so <laughs> I played it before you, so I, my memory is like yeah. a little fish too, so let's try and remember quickly. So developed by Redact Games in 2018, Sagebrush is, according to its Steam page, a first-person narrative-driven adventure. And we're going to see those words come up again when we when we discuss walking simulators later. So in the, the premise of Sagebrush is that you, as a playable character, have broken into an abandoned cult compound. And the cult that, you know, once inhabited this compound committed mass suicide in 1993. It's never really said, I think, when mm. the game takes place, but this has happened at a very specific time. So the game sees you explore the decrepit remains of the compound's core locations that saw the the community commune together. So there's like an eatery, like a, yeah. like a, a dining sort of like barn type yeah. of establishment. There's a school. There's a cornfield, which is really terrifying at times. <laughs> I got lost. Yeah, <laughs> me too. And the game also expects you to solve very simple puzzles to collect as you as you explore the compound. So I really enjoyed this title. I thought that it had a fantastic atmosphere and managed to produce such a a powerful atmosphere, even though the game itself is only two to three hours long. Mm. The atmosphere is quite unsettling. Um, the compound is very much peaceful and silent, and that is unnerving when, you know, you continue to uncover what happened at the compound. It kind of makes you feel a bit paranoid that, you know, out of nowhere, a, a, a cult survivor is going to, like, pop out and, like, haul you off to, like, some kind of torture chamber or something yeah. terrible. And I found I found that quite effective throughout the title. Um, and that's what I like when I play horror games. I like there to be a build-up of of um, of tension, and Sagebrush certainly did that. Mm. Uh, I also thought that the game presented some really interesting appeals about being in a cult and the desire to be part of a community and to engage in community acts together. Mm. And I feel like you know when we when cults appear in horror games they don't tend to be dealt with with any great nuance it's they like, kind oh, of like any of our cult yeah yeah, yeah they're yeah. their antagonists but this game actually does um discuss some of the discourse around being a, a cult survivor essentially mm. and I, I find that really really interesting because i feel like we all want to belong and i see the appeal right i can see how you know people that you know maybe can't make strong decisions for themselves mm. can end up um within the grasp um of 
a cult. So I found that really interesting and really satisfying. I will say that I wish that the game had been longer. I know that's like a great compliment, but in other ways, I'm also saying I wish that some of the the secondary characters um, had been more developed because yeah. I wanted to know more. Because you get snippets of notes and stuff from them and you're like, yes. oh, that's interesting. I can kind of understand, yeah, like you said, how you would kind of gravitate towards these kind of people and why you would feel that you have to stay or whatever. But you, you kind of always want more. <laughs> you yes. always want to understand yeah. even more. Yeah. Exactly. And that's not to take away from what it did create. You know, I felt like we did know the personalities of some uh, secondary characters quite well from, mm. you know, the, those little interactive elements that um, divulged information about them. But, yeah, no, I thought it was fantastic. A really good walking simulator. Yeah. I really liked the the graphics, I suppose. Like, they were kind of old feeling. I think maybe you would say PS1 style. Yes. Slightly grainy. It it was it made you feel like wow I'm really experiencing something that's otherworldly yes and it also made me feel a little bit nervous like because I was yeah. like I can't quite see what's over that hill because of the graphics and it made me quite uncomfortable and I thought that was a very clever choice yeah and I think that is like in terms of the narrative as well and the theme that is a clever choice because you know you're not able to see properly mm. what's happening and obviously we're talking about a cult and you know brainwashed or yeah. you know something similar so yeah that's really interesting as mm. a design choice but yes, yeah, so shall we move on to walking simulators yeah, more let's generally? Do it. So our first question we decided to reflect on today is kind of what are walking simulators? When and where did the genre come from and what kind of games or titles are perceived to be popular in this genre? So for me, my understanding of walking simulators is that they're games, but rather than do combat like we usually expect in a game or maybe build something or do puzzles, the main thing the player does is explore somewhere, maybe read some notes, maybe do some very minor puzzles. But I guess predominantly what you're doing is moving around and yes. therefore walking. Yeah. When I had a search around, I found that the term doesn't actually seem to be used in any kind of official capacity. It's just something that we know a lot. And we've yes. Heard a lot. Um, so on Wikipedia, walking sims are actually placed under the category adventure game. Mm-hmm. And on Moby Games, and Moby Games is interesting because I quite like them. They, they break games down according to genre, perspective, interface, setting, and narrative, lots of different categories. They put, they actually never use Walking Simulator. The game that I look up that I would, is sometimes considered to be Walking Simulator actually comes up under all these different categories. Yep. Uh, generally, I found that it seems to be used in kind of a derogatory way. So rather than describing the game in terms of like, it's a puzzle game or it's a narrative game, they'll say, oh, it's a walking sim. Yep. <laughs> um, I think walking sims are interesting. And I, I say this, when I say this, I've just said it's used in derogatory way. So maybe I should say in this podcast, when we say walking sim, we're kind of trying to use it in a way that many players use this label to attach lots of games, but we're not meaning it in a derogatory way. We're kind of using it as a descriptor. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I was going to say, actually, I use the term very liberally yeah. and without the derogatory like association. I didn't realize like, it actually had a good derogatory until yes. I looked it up and I thought, oh no, if I've said it, then maybe 
it's yeah. been thought to I mean mean it in a negative way, but I didn't. But I think it has been adopted in the general discourse, mm. like surrounding these games. I, I was reading a few articles on Waypoint the other day about walking sims, mm. and it seems like even developers use the term walking sim. I think it's okay. just stuck, and I think it's almost in a way been reclaimed. Like, yeah, yeah it is a walking simulator, and that's fine. Like, okay. you know, these are a group of fantastic games together, so why not, you know, attach this label to them because, you know, it, it's become pervasive, right? Yeah, it's something that you may as well use the term for something if people are going to use it anyway. It yeah. seems a bit odd not to. Yeah, yeah, and people know exactly what you're talking about mm. when you use the term, right? Yeah. Like if I go onto Reddit and I say, hey everyone, can I please get a recommendation of, you know, a, a walking sim that you've really liked? There are people that are going to be like, oh, instantly I know yeah. what a walking sim is and I know what kind of themes you're probably, that you probably enjoy when you play games and this is what I recommend. So, yeah, I don't I don't have any issues with the term currently. Obviously, when it is used in a derogatory way, it's just kind of like, ew. <laughs> when you see it, it's just yeah. like, oh, that's so immature. That's so sad that you feel that way. But, mm. yeah, I've adopted the term and I'll continue to use it. <laughs> Good. I'm glad we make sure. Because um, generally, I mean... W- I think these kinds of games, they kind of give us the opportunity to experience generally like an interesting narrative, maybe some interesting characters or just an interesting like setting or scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they can really give you the chance to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. Uh, and I also find they're really good for detectiving games, which yes. are very up my alley. Um, I think certain games like Gone Home kind of defined what we mean. Mm-hmm. By Walking Sim, in this game, you're kind of experiencing a childhood home. You come back from, I think it was from overseas or from college or something, and basically you learn about your family by looking through their house and you find out that your sister's had a rough time at school and she's bonded with another girl who she's become romantically involved with. Uh, The family doesn't really accept that, but you also find out things about other family members, like kind of family secrets and stuff. And I thought it was fascinating. In that detective-y kind of feel, I was like, ooh, what's going on here? What are we going to learn about these people? And you find, like, hardy holes in the house and stuff. Yeah, it also incorporates a supernatural theme as well. Mm. You're never quite sure if it actually exists or if because you are the character and you've come home to this lonely house that you're dealing with the ghosts of the past that, you know, only you can really connect and see. Yeah. They don't really exist. That's a good, I forgot about that, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Well, I think because so much of the discourse surrounding Gone Home is focused upon, you know, there's more queer themes mm. and, you know, coming out to your family and, you know, in a, in a terrible way, not being able to be accepted. And, uh, yeah, I think that that's quite interesting that we do forget about that because that is... I guess the legacy of Gone Home mm. is that it was one of the... I don't want to say one of the first times in gaming, but... I think that was one of the most prevalent sort of releases that, you know, did focus on that th- that theme of coming out very specifically and powerfully. Yeah, and it's so many awards, right? And it's kind of like artsy, kind of strong story, kind of trying to get you to understand something that maybe you wouldn't necessarily understand normally. And I think, yeah, that's kind of what uh, some of the games, at least in the genre, are particularly effective at, if yes. I can say genre. but <laughs> yeah. What about you? What did you um, What did you think about when we were kind of coming up with the idea of what a walking sim is? Okay, so much like you, I tend to associate the term walking simulator with titles that you know incorporate first person point of view, that uh, they may or may not contain puzzle elements to uh, complement uh, walking around and exploring an environment. Uh, 
like you, I'm not sure if I would really call this a genre. It kind of feels like a mix match of different elements together, but also there is definitely familiarity between the games that we consider to be in the genre. Mm-hmm. But they are all definitely different because it's easy to be like, you know, to be essentialist and say, oh, you know, these are all walking simulators. They do this, this, and this. But when you do look at them, it's like, no, 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 there are there are differences between them. It's always and more that complicated. Makes it, it is, yeah. It does make it quite complicated because some of the games can definitely be considered to be. Um, associated with different genres like horror for example like Gone Home I would say I'm just like oh it's not quite horror but it does contain horror elements so Mm. you know is it a horror adventure game as opposed to just an adventure game who knows so I actually read an article recently by Montem I think that's how you say it and Dilong Champ Gagnon that's a great job, I think. I'm terrible at European <laughs> pronunciations, but I think you've, I think you've done a I good think, job. I think, yeah, so this is a 2019 article. Uh, who inciting Gregerson 2014's experi- experientialist approach to analysing video games put forth five, five, and I quote, clusters of generic resources, end quote, that are culturally associated with walking simulators as a genre? So what... What they're talking about really is the game's composition of elements overall, the common experiences that one might um, experience when they play the game. So, quote again, they came up with, as I said before, the five clusters. So, number one was, and I quote, slow, solitary and peaceful walking through post-traumatic codified space, end quote. Two, quote, (laughs) search for secrets among ruined places. Three, sense of fatalism and spectrality. Four, voyeuristic apprehension of everyday life. And five, first-person disembodiment and ambiguous sense of identity, end quote. So I found that this article provided fantastic case studies for each of these clusters um, in their article that we'll put in the show notes, of course. And they go into far more depth than I'm willing to articulate on the podcast right now um, for each of them. But I wanted to note that when I saw this list, I was like, wow, I immediately identified with it. I think they hit the nail on the head there. Like in terms of effective experiences and aesthetics, like, yes. Yeah. This is exactly what a walking simulator does. Because it's quite hard. It, they're almost so ethereal or sometimes kind of vague that it's hard yes. to articulate. But that is a, I think yeah. that actually I was is a really shocked. Good I was job. like, yeah. wow, this is amazing. Good find. <laughs> because I really, you know, again, going back to how the term was originally used in a derogatory manner, it kind of presented walking simulators as basic and, you know, not worthy of one's time because, mm. you know, they're they're not a real game because they don't have, you know, those traditional systems in place. But, you know, when you look at um, Motombo and De Longchamp Scannon's article, you're just like, actually, you know, this experience is quite... Um, it, it varies, yeah. 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 Brilliant, because that perfectly <laughs> links into my next question, which was um, why the walking simulator genre is considered to be controversial. And... Um, when I first thought about that, it made me think about all the drama around Depression Quest, of course, um, and among all the other vitriol, which I will not talk about now, <laughs> uh, some people were really outraged that it was called a game because they're like, oh, well, it's not, so you can't call it a game. They're like, oh, it's choice-based narrative um, where the options are restricted to demonstrate what it's like for people with depression. And I have to say, playing it, I was like, oh, wow, it's, it's simple but so effective. Like, actually, it's amazing how you can communicate a certain kind of state of mind just by doing something as simple as showing you options but restricting your access to them. Yes. 
Um, and that, that's and obviously that was probably one of the first things I guess the first games that got criticism for that. And it's not so much a, a walking simulator, obviously, but you can see the pathway. You can see that connection to like, oh, what's a game? What's not a game? Yeah. Uh, I did some reading of Melissa Kagan, mm-hmm. who does some really interesting work in this area. I was quite excited when I found her. And, and she had an article in Game Studies, and I'll quote here. She said, the term walking simulator was originally derogatory given to works that hardcore gamers dismissed for their lack of effective interactivity. Walking sims offer an experience of spatial storytelling and exploration in which players wander around a narratively rich environment without earning points or necessarily accomplishing tasks. Even within a dynamic narrative structure, the player of a walking sim is often enabled to exert agency, change the story, or perform, perform mastery. I, I think like, that's a pretty decent, yeah, yeah. yeah. A decent <laughs> definition of what a walking sim is. Yeah, because she goes on to say, well, if traditional games enable players to live out a fantasy life of performing hypermasculine acts, then walking simulators re-establish an anxious homogeneity of passive non-performance. And look, there's a thing to be said about the hypermasculine stuff, and I don't really want to get into it now because. Yes, it's mapped onto certain gender actions, but we keep re-upholding that by saying yes. that. So, but that's the whole thing. Let's not overcomplicate life. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can kind of see. Okay, basically, it's against what we consider games to normally be. Right? Games are yes. active. You're doing stuff. You have control over something. In these games, you generally don't. You're like mm-hmm. kind of passive. You're exploring. Yep. Um, and Mia Consalvo and Christopher Paul in their book Real Games, which mm-hmm. also a great book, thoroughly enjoyed. Um, they describe these games as having emphasis on exploration and puzzles, on story, and focusing on investigation of a world. Which I'm, su- yeah, we keep saying I'm super I'm into gonna, that. Yeah, 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 I'm super into like investigating, detectiving, and trying to find out what's going on and piecing things together. So I enjoy that. It really seems to be like just going through all the definitions that we provided and the experiences that we've detailed um, from other sources. It really seems like. As you were, as you've put down here about Consalvo and and Paul, it really seems to be, you know, one, exploration and puzzles. Two, a real focus on story, and three, being able to wander around a world. Mm, That's what mm. a walking sim is in a very loose way. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult, you know, like coming from game studies, and we say, "What's a game? How do we define a game?" Yes. Actually, it's act quite complicated, <laughs> as, as we know when we teach our unit on this. Um, it's not they're not traditional games in the sense that when we define what is a game we usually say there's a win condition and we usually say there are rules the player has to function inside other than just being in a certain area and being able to do certain actions and i was kind of reflecting on this with the unit we've been teaching because bernard suits uh, says to play a game is to engage in an activity directed towards bringing about a specific state of affairs using only means permitted by specific rules where the means permitted by the rules are more limited in scope than they would be in the absence of rules, and where the sole reason for accepting such limitation is to make possible such activity. Which is a little bit a little bit mincy wordy, but basically it's saying, yeah, like you're trying to bring about a certain win condition by happening via certain rules. And the rules make things harder to achieve. And the whole reason you're doing this thing is to make the game playable. And you know, in this understanding, it's it's very easy to see like I'm using air quotes here, regular games, like Overwatch or The Witcher or Pacross even as, like, games, 
the walking simulators in comparison seem kind of different than maybe, are they games? Do they have a win condition? They kind of finish, but do you win? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting, and I think this is just how I approach games, but maybe I'm just a bit open to what a game is. For me, with walking simulators in particular, I, and maybe not everyone feels this way, but I kind of impose my own goal in a way. I'm like, okay, my goal is to finish the story. Mm. And I feel like the game itself prompts you, wants you to finish the story, right? So, you know, all this talk about rules and having specific goals are only achieved by the rules. I don't know if I necessarily adhere to it. Yeah, I think it's very, I think think it's very, very strict and restrictive. And I think that Walking simulators obviously challenge that, and that is why we have so many issues in, you know, actually applying definitions yeah. to them in the realm of, of of video games and what they are. But I just feel as if it's not that hard to see... How to describe it, it? I find it very hard to imagine someone sitting down, playing a walking sim and going, this is not a game. Yeah. And I, then there's questions, you know, like, well, it's built on a game engine. Does yes. that make it a game? You know, and Bernard's, his, his quote is he's from quite a while ago. I think I think 50s, I want to say. It might be wrong, but it'll be in the show notes. Um, so it's like kind of recognising that as we have new platforms and new media forms and new ways of doing things, that, yeah, we are going to complicate what we thought things were. Yes. And then that's why we kind of have this policing of boundaries and stuff because people go, oh, no, like, but I thought it was this and that's what I like. And then if we challenge that, then how do I understand what I like anymore and all that sort of stuff? Because, yeah, as you are saying, like, policing boundaries, that's exactly it. And I think that the, it's where the criticism for me regarding walking simulators comes in is that for me it's not the boundaries that matter it's the strength of the elements that are present for example a lot of walking simulators contain as we're saying before like exploration and puzzle elements but i've always found those puzzle elements to be quite weak in many of the in many of them i guess they're usually not difficult it's sort of just something to give you something to do to progress exactly and to keep you in the game for longer because you know if you didn't have those systems in place you would just run straight through it and again (laughs) but it would still be a game because you're still running towards the goal the end of the narrative (laughs) Mm, that's true so i guess coming to me again i found that the the literature on walking sims seemed quite interesting in discussing them as a genre so I'm not too surprised that uh, at the beginning of the genre, mm. so to speak, like when Gone Home was released, when it was published and it got stellar reviews from all the major uh, games publications, uh, that they were automatically associated with SJW themes. Ugh. That, you know, they did challenge what we what we perceive as a traditional video game. Um, but... Even then, like if we're going to go into like traditional video games, I bet if we, you know, go back to the 80s and 90s, we're going to find some games that were very much like walking simulators. I think that it's a falsehood. Yeah. Uh, and it's historical, uh, how can you say it, relativism also, revisionism, that we see walking simulators as a new thing because I just find it very hard to believe that nobody has ever thought, somebody, an indie developer has never gone, okay, let's make a game where, you know, we're going to explore an open space and it is going to be more like an interactive narrative than, you know, pew pew. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, 
Yeah, I, I find it really interesting that we are still struggling in legitimizing walking simulators as a genre. I do understand the concerns about it, but, you know, in being repetitive, unfortunately, I don't quite understand it. And I think that, <laughs> you know, the, those boundaries need to loosen and those yeah. definitions need to loosen because, you know, in 10 years' time, there could be another genre that pops up and it's going to be the exact same conversation unless we, within games culture and, you know, within games academia as well, become a bit more open to, you know, experiences that are games but perhaps aren't you know falling within that traditional category and even then like I would love to go into those traditional categories and look at them it's like no we're just associating the term traditional with them like sure they might have you know historical dominance but at the same time we'll look at them together as separate entities suddenly walking simulators aren't looking bizarre right yeah they're just looking a little different but together they're all different (laughs) okay you know survival horror games are very different to call of duty games and other shit like oh it bothers me so much (laughs) i think it's understandable you know because you sometimes i it just it's just this lack of um i guess openness or like this need to define things really closely it kind of goes against, I think, a lot of the philosophy that we engage with as well. So if you just don't, you try so hard not to see the world in that way and it feels like a lot of people trying to see the world in that way is so constraining and it's just unproductive, I guess. Yeah. Alternatively, if we don't see walking simulators as games, then maybe we need a higher category of what this is as like a, as a digital medium, as an interactive medium interactive medium like what is maybe this? an interactive thing <laughs> yes, yeah 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 absolutely that includes everything together maybe that already exists and I, I just can't think of it right now but maybe that's an alternative if people want to continue to categorize yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so I guess we should discuss now what walking simulator titles we've actually played yeah <laughs> so for me I've actually played a lot of horror themed ones like Blair Witch I'm not very far in it because it's still too scary. But anyway, <laughs> and which and that has some more puzzle mechanics in it. Um, Dear Esther, uh, Layers of Fear, um, which uh, Dear Esther I think is well known. It's kind of um, exploring an island, this like history with somebody. It's I don't want to say too much because it's quite rich narrative wise, but that's the gist of it. Um, Layers of Fear. Uh, I, the first one I really enjoyed. It's sort of like you're in this very scary house uh, to see what happened to this family and basically it seems that the guy, the dad who was a painter um, went a bit nuts and you kind of go through these crazy experiences um, in different rooms and that where reality changes like the the room will be upside down or some, some objects will move or it, it's very hard to describe but it's really like maybe surrealist is a good word mm-hmm. and you're kind of figuring out what happened to these people yeah. as this guy kind of lost his mind. Um, I also have played a bit of Pamali which is so cool. It's an Indonesian horror. Oh wow. It, I don't know how I found it but it's so cool. It's all Indi- Indonesian mythology which I'm, I'm learning a lot. That's and really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like four, I think there's four like episodes or stories and in each one so you're at a place and there's something scary happening. I think the first one is a ghost. Another one's got like a little 
demony creature kind of thing. There's one you're at a graveyard and you have to do certain actions and there's heaps of different paths you can take. Like, you know, whether you use scissors on something that has cultural importance. Like, I think one of them was, it was like you, you're not meant to put sharp, touch sharp objects or do something with sharp objects because then the, the ghost can use it. These kinds of really interesting cultural things that, that you're learning. That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, so like each playthrough for each uh, scene, I guess, has a bunch of different options. Um, so, you know, there's like 30 endings or something like that. Anyway, very cool, very different. Cool, like, soundtrack and... Yeah, just it's really it's a nice experience because it's just different from what I'm used to, really. Uh, Slender, of course, I think a lot of people know that. Like maybe one of the original horror walking yeah. scenes because you're just walking in circles hoping that you don't turn around because Slender will get you. you know? <laughs> it's, I really like these horror games as walking sims because I'm really pathetic oh. and like I can't play survival horror because I can't. get stressed. You've seen me try. Yes. I get stressed. And I don't react, and I get overwhelmed very easily. Um, so I really like these ways of experiencing the horror like mm-hmm. genre, but actually being capable of experiencing the horror genre. So that's what I'm into. Um, yeah, there's some others I've played that are more narrative-based, like What Remains of um, Edith Finch was one my friend recommended me, where you're kind of learning a bit about your family tree, which was really heartwarming, actually. I found it quite touching. Um, the station was a sci-fi one where you're on this space station and there's people missing and you're finding out what's happening and it's again I love a twist ending and that had a twist. Mm. Um, the Vanishing of Ethan Carter is another one which I didn't quite understand. I, I had to give it three goes to really get my head around it, but again it's kind of a supernaturally type thing. Um, I also really enjoyed The Return of the Obra Dinn, which. It's so hard to describe. It's got really strange graphics. Like, you could, there are a few different options, and they're from old game console, like Amiga or something like that. Uh, really catchy soundtrack, and basically, you've gone. You're you're almost like a supernatural uh, insurance person, and you know that the ship, all these people have disappeared, and you're going to investigate the ship to understand what happened, and you experience. Uh, sort of scenes, often deaths, with all the crew members and you have to sort of piece together what happened to everybody. Very cool. Just such a unique game. And I guess Walking Simulator is a way to describe it because it's, I guess it's a detective game, but mostly what you're doing is moving to different places and trying to and trying to view scenes from different angles and that. Um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few I've played. <laughs> and I think... Aside from the horror stuff, there are other reasons why I enjoy them. Um, They are relatively short, and as we keep saying, like, as adults, we are short on time and are tired, and I'm not necessarily prepared to spend three hours a night playing a really action-packed game because, frankly, I can't cope with it. Um, It's something that I can play in less time, and it's not as intense. Um, So these kind of experiences are a way to sort of be mentally engaged and entertained, but also be capable of winding down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Although I find that interesting that you say winding down and they have like the layers of fear and Yeah, it's know, kind of contradictory, isn't it? A it little is bit. A, <laughs> but it is interesting. And then like maybe like you were saying before, that like you don't like the confrontation of survival horror mm. titles, for example. So, you know, that's not as confronting for you. It's more of a 
a sort of boon to the story and maybe has an effect that doesn't heighten your anxiety or... Yeah, I mean, now you've pointed it out, Blair Witch definitely heightened oh, my no. anxiety. <laughs> so, did layers of... so, yeah, I guess maybe, yeah, the extent of the amount of energy you have to put into it and how tired you're going to be at the end of it isn't, isn't the same amount, I suppose. And obviously, yeah, there are so many different ones. Like, there's one I mean to play called Abzu where you just explore a beautiful ocean. And I was like, that sounds great. Yeah, you know, I guess... There are so many different experiences you can have. It's so true. So, yeah, what, what kind of ones have you played? So I actually haven't played many at all. And I know this <laughs> probably sounds a bit strange to say that after I just went on my protect the walking simulators <laughs> and the genre at all costs tirade that I was just on. But, uh, yeah, I've played very few. So I have played Dear Esther. I found that one, I think, because... I never grew up, I, I didn't grow up in a religious household, so I've always struggled with religious symbolism, and mm. I know that's a large part of Dear Esther. Oh, I had, to, I had to read a lot to understand yeah. bits yeah. of it, to be honest, yeah. Yeah, and so I guess that, because I was the same, I think that diminished my enjoyment of it a little bit. I still yeeted through it. Like, I really enjoyed the game, but I think that if you were a person that could recognise that religious symbolism, it would have been an amazing title mm. and unfortunately I didn't get that experience but that's a me thing not the game thing uh, Gone Home obviously I've played Layers of Fear Sagebrush and most recently Paratropic which mm. is a horror game that I would recommend to you it's awesome. a very different horror game it's surrealist absurdist and quite unsettling Ooh, okay. yeah. uh, the plot is roughly uh, about a character the playable character and you are taking videotapes over the border or to another city and that's considered illegal in this world oh. and i think maybe they're an allegory for drugs but okay <laughs> <laughs> i know this is this is a very abstract type of game but quite scary cool. quite scary very interesting dialogue as well if you like i don't want i, I don't want to say it's i don't want to say it's necessarily deep but if you like dialogue that you know you can kind of dissect mm. then i would recommend para, paratropic it is only 45 minutes long perfect um for a first <laughs> run um i did read online that things can change in uh, playthroughs, uh, subsequent playthroughs, but because I haven't played it again myself, I'm hesitant to say that, but I'm very interested to know if it does, and yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to playing it again. I did find that afterwards I was a bit like, what happened? And <laughs> that's not always a good thing for me because, yeah. you know, that becomes attached to the game. But I do think it is a worthwhile experience and one that is very, very unique uh, in video games. Cool. So those are the ones that I've that I've played. Much like you, I do like a good narrative. It's probably the primary motivator for me when it comes to video games. If a game has, you know, fantastic, uh, say, flow of movement or, you know, it has beautiful environments but it doesn't have an engaging story, um, my ADHD doesn't accept that and we move <laughs> on to the next game. It's my issue with open world games, you know, I need, a, I need the narrative to be front and centre essentially. So I will note with these titles that quite often I find myself, even though I've enjoyed the game, I find myself yearning for more. Mm. And 
this I don't think that this is the fault of the games necessarily because typically they are made by independent developers, sorry, and they only have so much time. They only have so much budget. We can't compare them to the experiences in a way that we have with AAA titles because AAA titles can go for 100 hours sometimes. You know, these games are, you know, they're compact. And so when I say I feel, oh, unsatisfied because maybe I didn't get as much of as much understanding of the narrative as I thought I would get. I feel like that's my expectations that are at fault and not necessarily the games. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I feel like I do tend to enjoy walking sim titles that incorporate more systems than those that don't. Sure. Like I said, I did enjoy DS though, but I found it, you know, it's very much a pure walking simulator in a way in that, you know, you can just run straight through yeah. it. Uh, There's and not many puzzles or inventory yes, or that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and I think that that does Im- impact my enjoyment because I want to spend more time in the game. I find that in terms of effect in games for me and how it affects me as a player, <laughs> I need to be... I need to be immersed with the experience, so to speak, as opposed to being like, I'm going to run straight through this because I can't help myself. I'm undisciplined and there's no rules in place to stop me. (laughs) (laughs) It feels gluttonous. It's hard to slow down and take a moment if there's nothing kind of incentivizing you to do that. But that's understandable, I think. I know sometimes... Sometimes I feel like I want to play like a more relaxing game, like a style like this. But then when I get in there, I'm I'm like, what do I do? Where do I go? And I'm like, okay, maybe this isn't the right time for you to be playing this style of game. You need you need a, maybe a certain um, be in the right frame of mind or right mood or something. No, absolutely. And I think you know we we don't talk enough about player tastes mm. and you know the kinds of states that we're in when we play video games because they do impact how you receive the game. Mm-hmm. Like, let's be real here, you know, if you don't like a game, you know, before you jump on a comment section and go, oh, this game sucks, like, <laughs> perhaps think about how you are doing when you actually play the video game, especially if everyone else loves it, especially <laughs> if it's critically acclaimed. Um, okay, so... Our final section today, uh, we're going to be discussing whether or not in our own experiences in playing walking simulators, if we believe there is really any merit to the argument that these titles are not real or true games, which I feel like we've been focusing on throughout the podcast episode already. But is there anything more that you want to add? Yeah, you're right. Look, you're right. We kind of have touched on this a bit, but (laughs) I think there are some ways to dive a little bit deeper. Yeah, I guess, okay, the, the way I try to think about it is, yes, these pieces of media are more like interactive narratives than traditional games like Bernard Zutz or someone would say they are. But they're made in a game engine and they do involve more interaction than, like, for example, choose your own adventure book. So try to, I try to conceptualise it this way. Many involve puzzles, inventories or some kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. Also, early DOS games were super similar. We still called them games. But like you, like you kind of said before, yes, a lot of those games kind of were what we'd probably call walking sims because that's what was possible in that technology and we were, people were making them, learning from Jesus your own adventure books, you know what I mean? Like, that's what they were. Um, when I looked at the community tags for a lot of my Steam games, I noticed that a lot were labelled as walking simulators and I didn't necessarily think they would be. And that was interesting. Um, Amnesia is one, which I'm like, yeah, you, in Amnesia, it's a horror game, you hide. 
you have sometimes I think you do have an inventory and there are puzzles to solve, but mostly you walk around, you hide. It's not, yes. Yeah, it kind of is a walking sim and it's not necessarily what we think of one. Well, I didn't. Blair Witch, I've mentioned earlier, I was surprised. At, and again, I was like, oh, it's like a horror game, right? But yeah, you walk around. Sometimes you use a camera to capture stuff, but you walk around. Yes. Um, Observer, uh, similar sort of thing. Uh, Octodad made me laugh. I'm totally going to talk about that in a second because Octodad is, yeah, you're literally you're literally applying game mechanics to the action of walking because you have eight legs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, Return of Dune, I was surprised about. And even Skyrim had, was labeled as a walking simulator and I was like, whoa, that's, a, that's something to think about because that is. you spend a lot of time walking, I suppose, and a lot of people play it in a way where you're mostly walking around experiencing the game. You don't actually have to do the, the missions or quests, I should say, or anything like that, I suppose. Well, I mean, can we not extend that to the open world genre? Because if you're not abusing the fast travel all the time, yeah, you're then walking you're walking around. around. I think, yeah, that's totally... It's an interesting point, right? It, it actually is. makes things quite complicated. Um, and so that's why I guess, like you, I do find the argu- this argument kind of tiring. Because I feel like this controversy has come around, partly because people are innovating and doing new things. And then we whinge because we don't know how to categorise it. And I think that's a really poor reason it to is. complain. I think who cares what we call it? Yeah. We just it kind of, if someone makes something and they like it, great, you know. Um, and again, like we said, that's kind of people, of course, wanting to understand the world. What's one way to help understand the world? Categories and labels and stuff, I guess. Yes. And I also wanted to add as well, there is an existing rhetoric that exists uh, around game elements and quite often narrative is considered lesser than game mm. mechanics. When people talk about, oh, the gameplay, they're not talking about the narrative, they're talking about the mechanics that one uses that's true. to play the game. Um, and I feel like that's, like I was talking about, like the traditional elements before and where if you were to put them together and, and look at them separately, then they are separated. They're mm. not together. And I feel like it's people just looking at this one assemblage and considering it to be the definition of what a game is. Mm. And, you know, even with, like, game development, people, when they think of game developers, they're like, oh, they can code. They don't think about the narrative writers who have significant jobs throughout mm. the game development process. So I, I feel like there's there's kind of like a bias there as well. Very much so when it comes to, oh, you know, a game is this as opposed to this. Yeah, it's got mechanics. That's what makes a game a game. But what about everything else? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's definitely a good point. It's like there's so many aspects to it and certain games will have certain aspects more emphasised than others, I suppose, right? But that doesn't make them not games. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because, like, at the same time, like... I do, I know I get funny, I have strong feelings about gamification. Yes. And I kind of go, no, like, I agree a bit with Bogost and I go, applying, like, game elements to non-game things doesn't make a game. And I do feel about that. So then I maybe I do care about labels and categories. But I would argue that gamification isn't done with the intent of play or, like, an engaging experience. It's just to try to make people, you know, feel as if what they're, that they're playing is fun when it actually isn't or yeah, is engaging. Yeah. I shouldn't say just fun because, you know, obviously game experiences have gone beyond being fun. But do you know what I mean? They're trying to get something out of... Yeah, they want, the you, game- like, they want you to engage with, with their, like, rewards programs yes, so that yeah. you give the money. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. That's a good way of looking at it. We should definitely think about gamification at some point. We should. <laughs> we should. Yeah, and I guess 
the fact, if I just go back a bit again, the fact that Octodad came up legitimately made me laugh because there's all these horror games <laughs> coming up as Walking Sim and then there was Octodad and I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like, it's a Walking Sim, <laughs> you know? And I guess it's different to how people usually mean Walking Sim because you're quite literally controlling this guy's legs and it's almost like co-op. It's absurd. It's silly. You're, you're applying game mechanics to walking. And recently I started playing Death Stranding and I had similar thoughts about that. And I'm not going to fully go into Death Stranding here because I've got some things to say and they're not all no nice. And I think if you like it, great. But I do think it's wildly problematic. But I think, in short, I think it, I can, I think they had a really interesting story. And you can see that they've selected some game mechanics. And I, but I don't think it functions together at all. And I think there's some problems with the game world. It doesn't make sense and stuff. But doesn't matter what I think <laughs> in terms of this topic. I've seen people joke that the game's a walking simulator and I was like, oh, it kind of is, right? Because in this game, they've gamified walking. You're meant to arrange your luggage or your packages in a way that you're balanced so that you don't fall over, uh, over rocks and slippery surfaces. Like, you have to move in certain ways when there is strong wind or when you're going through a river to try not to fall over while you're walking. You, you know, there's there's actually these game mechanics surrounding walking, which you would uh, could possibly argue that's actually quite a literal walking simulator. And kind of in terms of where I'm at in the game, as well as, like, hiding from invisible enemies and some really weird mechanics where there are toilet mechanics and peeing mechanics and I'm just... I don't understand, but let's not even go into that today. Like, that's the main part of the game, is is the walking and sneaking and making sure your packages are arranged well so you can walk and sneak well. So in that sense, surely that's quite literally a walking simulator. Um, and it did receive that criticism, not from critics as far as what I've read but from audiences that okay. mocked it for that. Of course it's a Kojima game so you know it sold quite well but at the same time there were still those people that were saying it's a literal walking simulator. And it's funny because yeah I won't go into it much but I think for me I feel like if other elements of the game functioned more effectively like the toilet mechanics is just weird. The story is to me quite it doesn't hold and the world building doesn't hold and I think personally if those things made more sense to me and if other mechanics were implemented a bit more effectively then you know maybe it's a chill game where yeah I walk from A to B I listen to some music I enjoy an environment I can understand yeah I can see why people would enjoy that um I just it's fine I just don't think it holds in that way for me but anyway yeah. No, I agree. I have played uh, a bit of Death Stranding. I haven't completed it. Uh, it just wasn't a game for me. I've always been strong on the argument that, you know, games are assemblages and that assemblage is, it either works or it doesn't. But that's subjective. And for me, it just didn't work. I really commend Kojima for always, like, implementing, you know, just different mechanics, yeah. like the toilet mechanic a bit gross. It's weird. But, but it's creative. That is different and creative. Yeah. But at the same time, that's not enough to keep me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> Kojima. Yeah, I'm not super... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are so many things I I have problems with that I'm kind of like, 
yeah, I I think I think it's an interesting idea. It just doesn't hold. It is, and yeah. it is nice to see in that AAA realm more experimental games yeah. coming out. That's a good point. But in this case, it just wasn't for us. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mm. do hope that 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 it's poor. Well, rel- I guess relative performance. I know it has. There were a couple of reviews around Steam, and I was like, oh wow, you've hit the name. You've really well articulated how I felt about the game. But yeah, I do hope that doesn't prevent people from being experimental because. Yeah. You can't have everything be amazing all the time, right? That's just exactly. impossible. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's all we've got for today. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Yeah, see you later. Bye.